Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Okay, guys, we're doing it. We are going there. Today, we're focusing on a drink that uses vanilla vodka as its base spirit, and not just any old drink. No, we're talking about the porn star martini. Every facet of the porn star martini seems custom designed to grab our attention. There's the gaudy name, striking appearance, and let us not forget the ingredients themselves. Vanilla vodka, we just mentioned, not one, but two different forms of passion fruit, one of which is undoubtedly passe by this point. And of course, there's the sidecar of sparkling wine, just for good measure. Is the porn star martini therefore a little bit extra? Hell yeah, brother. But I'd like to throw this thought into the mix, if I may. In this era we're now enjoying where drinks like the Cosmo and Espresso Martini are having a second spell in the sun, why not the Point Star Martini? So we're going to explore that very cocktail today with Laura Newman, a Birmingham, Alabama-based bar owner and the 2018 USA World Class winner. Now, Laura comes at the Point Star Martini with a unique perspective and invaluable experience. This is not only the most popular drink at one of her bars, but Laura has had to come up with inventive solutions for multiple ingredients that are not available in her state. I think that aspect of today's conversation is particularly important because it highlights just how fragmented this nation remains when it comes to the supply of certain ingredients and it also reminds us of our frankly weird alcohol laws this is the cocktail college podcast listener and we are unashamedly going deep and getting intellectual about that wonderful concoction known the world over as the porn star martini We have Laura Newman joining us today, everyone, on the Cocktail College podcast. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Was looking at a copy of your resume earlier and very impressive that it is one thing stood out to me, and those were the words, porn star martini expert. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still not sure who told you this about me, but I'm extremely flattered. Well, You know, that is a title I think anyone should be proud to have. Um, This is a drink that I think goes woefully underappreciated. And I think it's just such a great story. This drink also happens to be my mum's favorite cocktail. So on all accounts, very excited to dive into this one. Same. It's also my mother's favorite cocktail. She's actually flying down to Birmingham to visit today so she will be having a few at least (laughs) definitely can't have just one but 
before we dive into some of the more technical aspects, let's just talk about this drink from a cultural standpoint. I feel kind of like as a British transplant that it's maybe more widely appreciated or more widely known in the UK. Uh, But definitely it is this cocktail that sort of has gained steam over the years here in the US. Um, What's the reaction from bar guests for you? Is this a beloved cocktail? What's the general vibe? Yeah, I think that when we first menued it, which I've had it on the menu at my cocktail bar, Queens Park, since we opened in, um, we opened in 2018, but we really opened with our, you know, normal classic menu in 2019 in January. We've had it on the menu without stops since we opened and it is hands down the best selling drink of all time at this bar, like by a really large margin. Wow. The bar is actually named after another cocktail, the Queen's Park Swizzle, and yet the Porn Star Martini is number one, and I want to say the Queen's Park Swizzle is like number five in terms of all-time greatest sales. Wow. Just to give you an idea of where it is in terms of like, it's more popular than the drink we named the bar after. (laughs) People know you're the expert. And I know I just need to open a bar called Porn Star, but I don't think the Alabama government would let me. Um, Anyways... (laughs) Uh, the drink itself, I think when we first put it on the menu, it was from what I understand, uh, not on any other menus in Birmingham at that time. Um, I, you know, frequented pretty much every cocktail bar in the city and did not see it anywhere. Um, but I had, you know, coming from New York, I obviously had had several, um, or had more than several, but at several different places. Um, And I, you know, we put it on the menu. I think people were initially a little uh, scandalized by the name. Okay. Especially in the South or it's, you know, even though Birmingham is very, it's a larger, more liberal city. I think people are still a little like, what is this? Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's the, the appeal of it is twofold. First off that people are drawn to it because of this name that, you know, for a lot of people is still kind of, um, you know, kind of naughty to say and to order. And then it also is this mixture of things that are absolutely delicious when combined together and have a history of being combined together in pastry. So people may already have an association with it from either like cakes or baked items. Um, They may have had it previously, or if they haven't had it, it's kind of something that's shown tried and true to be this, this combo that people love. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the name there. I do think it's one of these, yeah, yeah, slightly scandalous names. Um, I think maybe when it, you know, when it first came out or or in certain parts or in certain markets, that might continue to be the case. There's another, there's a number of notable things about this drink though, right? That make it striking, that make it stand out. We could, we're going to get into all of those, but just the color, the garnish, the sidecar that comes with it. Um, this is not a cocktail that's that's trying to kind of blend in and mix into the fold right this is this is in your face but i would argue like you say you know this can be a wonderful drink when when treated properly and with respect absolutely and i think that is this is a really good example of um it really comes down to the ingredients to the kind of minutia of how you want to present and you know combine these flavors um you know, and some obviously the original recipe is my favorite, but in cases of, you know, if you can't execute it for reasons that I'm sure we'll talk about, um, 
it's you're, you can actually kind of overcome some of those and hack it in a way that makes it possible to execute where you are, which mm-hmm. I like. Hacking porn star martinis. That is going to be our <laughs> task for the next 30 to 45 minutes. Um, before we dive in, just a quick reminder for anyone who's not familiar with it, right? This is a vanilla vodka, passion fruit in a couple of guises, uh, a sweetening agent, and then um, a side of sparkling wine traditionally, right? That's the that's the general mm-hmm. composition that we're talking about general, here, right? Yeah. Um, exactly. Can you tell us about the backstory of this drink, though? Because I think that this remains... There's all these conversations out there about modern classics and modern classic cocktails what constitutes is that and you know some of the the drinks that we give that title to i would argue that you could go to many bars and the bartender might not have heard of or might not know the spec off by heart but i think this is that this is an example that's broken into the mainstream in the modern history of cocktails correct Yeah. So I think that it's a really interesting cocktail in the sense that, like you said, it was created while we were alive, that it grew grew in popularity while we were alive. And there aren't a lot of classics like that. A lot of classics, we look at these, you know, menus and it'll, you know, it'll be people that died like hundreds of years ago. We have no way of knowing their thoughts on the original drink outside of what has been published. Um, Sometimes there's not even an author it's really attributed to. It might be like, oh yeah, like, It was served at this one bar. We're not really sure who came up with it. Um, However, more recently, we do have this generation of cocktails coming out where we know the people that made them. Um, A Trinidad Sour, Giuseppe Gonzalez. You have Dick Bradzell with the Bramble and the Espresso Martini. And then in the case of the Porn Star Martini, we have Doug Ankara um, or Douglas or D, depending on what you knew him as, um, who only recently passed away. But this is a great example of a drink creator being able to witness the global popularity of a cocktail they created and its ascension to the pantheon of modern classic cocktails. Incredible. Imagine that. Which is super cool. Yeah. So anyways, a little bit on Doug, because I think um, my a really great regret that I have, especially as someone who is apparently a porn star martini expert, is that I actually never got a chance to meet him. Um, unfortunately, I left New York uh, prior to getting to meet him there. And I don't think uh, visiting Birmingham in the U.S. was very uh, high on his or anyone's list of places they're excited <laughs> about going to. Um, which hopefully is changing, but you know, it's not, you know, it's not a massive destination yet. Um, so he didn't really make it down for for me to meet him, but, um, I got to speak to some of his really good friends about him and it's been really interesting to learn about him. He was actually a member of the Ghanaian Royal family. He was very proud of his culture. Yeah. Um, moved to the UK. He was pretty much just in London. Um, he was a really, people describe him as having been a boundary pusher really ahead of his time. But at the same time, really big on ensuring that the next generation of bartenders were educated, that he passed his knowledge on to them. Um, He was one of the first people to kind of require people to work in a support role before moving behind the bar at the bars that he owned, uh, Lab and the Townhouse. It was like you had to bar back before you could start serving drinks, which we do at my bar. I mean, it's pretty common, I think. Um, And the idea for the porn star martini came to him when he was actually running a bar program at a place called Mavericks, otherwise known as Mavs, which was a gentleman's club. And he was writing his book, Shaken and Stirred. So I guess the, apparently the PG name for a cocktail martini, and I feel like this is, or a porn star martini, I think this is a little more common in the UK as a Maverick martini. That was fun to learn. And then he menued slash like developed the drink into what it is today at lab, which, um, 
was a bar created by the London Academy of Bartenders, a group he founded, and then Townhouse. So, and I think the really interesting thing is he, he watched people, like he knew Dick Bradsell and he saw him create the espresso martini and the Bramble, make no money from his creative efforts. And he was like, as a bartender, I'm going to make money off of this, which was a little like, again, ahead of your time and kind of daunting seeing as how once we create a cocktail, it's in the public domain. Right. And just so incredible though that, yeah, like you said, he, he managed to watch this creation over time spread around the world and gain this incredible popularity. I'm not sure if he did manage to monetize it in any way. I hope that he did. But as you mentioned there, that's not always the case, sadly, when it comes to, to drinks and drinks culture. So he was able to, he, uh, in a sense, he had a lot of irons in the fire. Like I said, he was really creative. He was really big on like thinking about not necessarily like disruptive things, but just, he was kind of like really on the money in terms of always like realizing things that were ahead of the trend and sometimes to his detriment in that he sometimes pursued stuff like maybe before people were like ready for it. But he, um, like he was creating this line like prior to COVID, I feel like during COVID and during lockdown, like RTDs really took off or like yeah. maybe more like 2019 is when I really started noticing them in the South, which is kind of like the last place stuff hits. Mm-hmm. But he create, he was creating like a porn star RTD and he was looking into maybe creating like some sort of proprietary like mixer for it. And then he kind of developed that during, during lockdown into basically like porn star kits that he was selling. So he did, he was to a smaller degree monetizing them. And I think it's, un, it's obviously a tragedy that he passed away, but especially from a historical and like development of cocktail standpoint, uh, you know, we never really got to see where he was going to take this idea of monetizing it. Like mm-hmm. he had, you know, I feel like he was the kind of person who was so, so big on like these ingenious ideas. I feel like he was going to, you know, like it, it's really unfortunate to not see this final form of like, you know, creating the template like he did with sort of training, you know, making people bar back first and like creating this template that's spread around the globe, creating a template for how to monetize and capitalize on creating a modern classic. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think certainly some of the, the the aspects of his personality and legacy that you're describing there are epitomized by this creation though and, and live on through it right like just the, this idea of being a maverick and and just the, the the cocktail itself right and we spoke a little bit about it just striking appearance the combination of ingredients that are yes common in other fields but perhaps had never been brought together in cocktails before so let's dive into those now and let's dive into the drink First of all, if you order this drink, what are you expecting to receive, both kind of visually and also the the, the profile of the drink within the glass? What are you hoping for in its highest form? In its highest form, and there are a few caveats in here that I can go into further, but disregarding things like... um, environmental impact of flying exotic fruit around the world and, um, you know, wasting glassware and water during service. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm expecting a striking like yellow, but like a really powerfully yellow cocktail, two vessels. One is a sidecar and it can be anything from a standard, very basic shot glass to, um, more of a cordial, like a stemmed cordial glass. I expect the drink itself, though, to be in a coupe glass. And ideally, 
there's going to be at least some room in that coupe because the idea of the side serve, I think a lot of people don't think about this, but the idea of the side serve should be that you can either have it separately as a shot or you can add it to the cocktail all or partially. I have a lot of feelings about that. Okay. Um, The drink is garnished with a, uh, you know, half slice of passion fruit. Again, we're not going to talk about cost or environmental impacts Mm -hmm. of this. This We'll just say that you care about these things, um, but we're, we're ignoring them just for the purposes of this conversation. Um, A half passion fruit, a tiny demi toss spoon. The drink itself is extremely fluffy on the head. It's been aerated, chilled, diluted correctly. It has a rich texture. And then for me, ideally the sparkling wine has been specifically chosen to pair well with this cocktail. It is not just necessarily the sparkling wine by the glass offered by this cocktail program. Amazing. And we will get into that because I have some strong thoughts about this sparkling wine for this drink too. Mm. But I think before we do, let's break it down ingredient by ingredient, sparkling wine being one of them, but not the first. Let's go with uh, base spirit, which we classically do when we're breaking down cocktails, right? So what are we calling for here and what's your approach to the base spirit of this drink? So the original recipe calls for vanilla vodka. That was Doug's original recipe. Um, And again, if I think it's really important when thinking about all the ingredients of this cocktail to think about the fact that they really need to harmonize and there is a tremendous amount of variation in all of these ingredients So it's really important that people tweak this drink correctly based on what they're getting. So, for example, Doug had a preferred vanilla vodka. However, that may not be available in certain places. For us, they're certainly not. And we found that the vanilla vodkas that were available simply did not work for the flavor profile we were trying to achieve. Um, It just tasted really artificial it just really did not do it for me um so we actually use an unflavored vodka which i feel is fair given the other tweaks that we have made to accommodate that um however the traditional recipe does call for vanilla vodka fantastic and so yeah we'll get into some of the other ways that you can that you can maybe kind of remedy that but i think it's a very important important point that you make there which is that just seeing something listed on a recipe doesn't mean perhaps that it is kind of canon, right? Like, and maybe that has contributed to some of the, the the strong feelings that people maybe have against this drink, whereby people are taking the ingredients very literally, but not tasting them all together. Or maybe that takes us to yeah. an outcome that's maybe too artificial or sweet, especially because... The next two components of the drink, we're talking passion fruit in two different ways. Um, Let's start with the passion fruit liqueur first, perhaps the most common of which being Paswa. I would imagine it's the most common, um, although there are some other great brands on the market that I'm certainly not uh, not opposed to using. Um, I think that, but I want to say that um, I want to say that Doug's original recipe called for that, but like, um, Jafard has a great one. Um, Alize has a great one, actually. Fun fact. Nice. Um, Chinola, another great one. There are a lot of options for people that are looking for a passion fruit liqueur to toss into their porn star martini. But I, I do want to say his original recipe was Pasua, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. And specifically from the flavor, the flavor profile of that, is that something that's going to be dead on sweet? Is it going to be 
full on tar or is it maybe somewhere landing somewhere between the two? In my experience, passion fruit liqueur versus the passion fruit puree that's up next is going to be the sweeter of the passion fruit expressions. Um, Mm -hmm. Passion fruit, for those of us who haven't bitten into a fresh one recently, um, is extremely tart. Like it is your salivary glands get going immediately. It like hurts the back of your jaw to eat in a pleasant way for most people, I would hope. Mm -hmm. But passion fruit liqueur definitely is not as acidulated or acidic. I'm sure that in order to enhance the flavor, there are, you know, powdered acids added to them. But Mm -hmm. traditionally, this is the sweetener element. In the original cocktail, there isn't the addition of simple syrup or anything like that. So this is where the sweet comes from. And you just, you know, you talk about two brands right there, like Passoa or Alizé, like definitely not things that in the early 2000s were being considered probably very seriously by those in the highest echelons of, of the bartending community. Perhaps, maybe I'm wrong, but again, maybe that's why this, this drink has, has, has sometimes been overlooked or not taken seriously enough. Agreed. I didn't, I hadn't even really thought about that, but you're right. Because I was talking to my mother who was a very, uh, very fond of nightclubs in New York in the (laughs) seventies, eighties and nineties. Um, and she was telling me about how she loved like Alizé and champagne. Like that was like her drink. She's a really big Alizé drinker. Um, but she traditionally didn't use it like as a small cocktail ingredient. It was usually like as part of a you know, one and one or, wow. you know, some sort of like Alizé champagne, Alizé vodka, like something like that. Nice. Um, and so then, yeah, next up, passion fruit puree. So we've gotten some mm-hmm. of the sweetness from the, the liqueur. That puree, therefore, is going to be doing the bulk of the work when it comes to making this drink uh, refreshing, ideally. Yes. Yeah, so the puree, um, and again, it's, you know, if you haven't tasted it in a while, you may be a little rusty. I know I certainly don't get exposed to passion fruit puree that often due to reasons we'll speak about going forward. But traditionally this, um, the recipe actually calls for a pretty tremendous amount of this. It's about, it's usually, I think his original recipe was two ounces approximately of passion fruit puree, which is uh, like an insane amount to me, but that's awesome because I actually just had one in preparation for this interview last weekend. I had an OG Doug Ankara spec passion fruit martini with the two ounces of passion fruit. And let me tell you, it was extremely luxurious. I wish I could afford to do that all the time because it was incredible. It was really, really good. It added this really luscious mouthfeel. You know, all that acidity that I talked about was right there. There is a sweetness in passion fruit for those of us who use it in cocktails or like in our bar setup. Um, There is certainly some sweetness there, but it is tremendously offset by the amount of acidity that's in it. So Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily think of this as adding too much sugar. Like it might be the equivalent of a significantly lower amount of simple syrup. Mm -hmm. And this typically in the ideal form, this is going to be, this is a frozen product that arrives that essentially, you know, you will melt down and you'll have it there on hand and, you know, has a shelf life and whatnot. But right, like it's that frozen puree. It's not, we're not talking about maybe like a cordial or something else, like in the original form. In the original form, yes. Um, I've also heard of places actually processing real passion fruits, which, um, uh, that just sounds tremendously expensive on both a labor and materials front. Um, I have never had one like that because I personally do not feel like processing enough passion fruits <laughs> to yield two ounces of it. Um, I just can't fathom the cost of that, but uh, supposedly it's delicious. But yes, this is traditionally something that is purchased frozen. Um, a couple of companies that I could think of off the top of my head that make them are Perfect Puree and Boiron. Um, 
But the other issue, too, is that those two things can be really hard to come by if you're not in a major market. Um, You know, in the case of Doug or in, you know, me having been from New York, you know, it's really easy to get those things. They cost a lot less because they're brought directly into the they're either they're like imported directly from where they're produced to New York, Chicago, LA. Um, and then they get distributed around the rest of the country. Usually perfect purees in Napa Valley, Boron's in France. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, um, if you have access to it in a way that is cost effective for a beverage program, it is absolutely delightful in a porn star martini. Amazing. Also that final flavor po- profile that we mentioned there tart enough so that this cocktail shaken cocktail with these other ingredients it resembling something of a sour actually doesn't contain any citrus classically that's correct classically uh there is no citrus in the recipe um in doug's recipe but again depending on how you're hacking this drink or trying to think about a way to make it more cost effective in a beverage program or even a cost achievable in a beverage program you may need to add some citrus and i think it's still to the spirit of the drink to do that i think that's fair i mean i don't think it's you know, you should penalize a bar that simply cannot is, you know, in yeah. in a really small market and cannot fiscally add these ingredients in a way that they can afford, you know, they can charge what they, what the market will bear for and, that. I and think that's fair. Ultimately, yeah, you're, you're looking to achieve a final p- flavor profile. We're not just talking mm-hmm. about, right, trying to religiously stick to the list of ingredients because that one needs to be done, right? Like it's a case by case scenario. Yes, I agree with that. Interestingly, though, while we're not opting for citrus, we are still going to include some more sweetening agent. Um, what's the what's the traditional thinking here? Um, I want to say that the um, the original one is like just is like sugar or like vanilla sugar, sugar that's had kind of been put in a jar with vanilla. Um, but uh, you know, I think that. Again, from like, if I'm bartending at home and I want to make the OG one, yes, cool, that's great. But if I'm in a bar, you know, working a busy service, you do have to think about stuff like that too. Like incorporating actual sugar instead of a sugar syrup into a cocktail just takes longer Mm -hmm. um, in order to, uh, you know, emulsify it and um, dissolve it into the liquid uh, and to not, you know, let any sugar be left over and not get into the drink. So I want to say the original one is it's, vanilla sugar which again this is like a and it uh, it's basically like infusing white sugar with vanilla bean pods in a jar um, or a cambro but um i think more commonly in a high volume or any sort of volume bar setting it's usually vanilla syrup at this point Mm -hmm. that makes a ton of sense and then so on to the sparkling wine sidecar (laughs) <laughs> is I, I I've seen varying accounts. I believe some people uh, ha- have reported champagne being the original. The version that I've always come across and that would seem to be or to make slightly more sense with the soul of the drink is Prosecco. How do you feel about the sparkling wine for this drink? I want to say the OG OG recipe calls for champagne. Um, and tra- I think the reason for that being that champagne, you know, it's the most expensive sparkling wine. It has the most prestige. It's the most like, even though it is prestigious and the queen of England is drinking it with oysters, they're also popping it at strip clubs. Like it's something that has this sort of high and low connotation, but this idea of like, we're spending a lot of money. It's luxe, but it can be in this more lowbrow setting. Um, 
in my opinion, I do think that sparkling rosé and ideally a rosé champagne is the correct side serve Ooh. in that even though that is not the original, original spec, just because sparkling rosé to me it, and rosé champagne is like ostentatious, it's luxurious, it costs even more than champagne usually, like regular like non-rosé champagne. Um, and that sort of works with the idea of a porn star martini to be this like over-the-top, like luxurious, like bougie cocktail i think for me that's how we serve it at least but my biggest thing with the sparkling wine is that it has to match the drink and i think so many people again just do like oh well we have this sparkling wine by the glass so we're gonna that's what's gonna be the side serve um we actually you know anytime we had a production issue so they were no longer able to get the sparkling rosé that we were using. We did a tasting of like six different sparkling rosés against our porn star martini spec at Queens Park because I wanted to make sure that it paired correctly with the drink, both as sort of like a secondary sip or shot after sipping the drink or as something that you could pour into the drink because again, like thinking about OG recipe versus how you can tweak it a little bit. What we do is ours is slightly sweeter than Doug's recipe for various reasons. Um, involving like procurement of ingredients. Um, there's also a sweeter palette here in the South. Um, and I like having the rosé kind of as, as a, as a way for a guest to temper the cocktail a little bit. We have some people that are like, I love it the way it is going to do it as a shot afterwards. We have some people who are like, I pour the whole thing in or part of it in because it adds more acidity, right? Champagne or any sparkling wine is going to have that acidity in it. And for me, it can, it gives guests the option to kind of hack their own cocktail a little bit and give them <laughs> this extra sense of like, like we get such positive feedback from guests that are like, I love being able to like, you know, adjust the cocktail to the way that I like it. Like there's no other bar that I know of in the city that does something like that, where you can actually, you're encouraged to make the drink to your liking. Mm -hmm. And this is a nice kind of clean, natural transition into the garnish here. Cause Something that I'm hearing having been done or is happening, someone asked me about this recently and I'm like, wait, no, that is an abomination who's doing this, is that some people are taking the the, the passion fruit garnish, the, the half passion fruit cut in half, removing essentially the, the, the meat of the fruit and serving the sparkling wine inside that. And that's the oh, only dear. sparkling wine that you're getting. That is oh, not dear. how it should be done, right? No, I think, I mean, to me, it's all about, again, like it's over the top, it's ostentatious, like it's a second glass and whether or not that second glass is you're so high volume that it just needs to be a shot glass. Maybe you can get like, there's a cute little cut glass one that has unfortunately been out of stock since like six months into COVID, but I'm hoping it comes back. Um, that I think is a really pretty side serve and you can like throw those against a wall and they survive or, you know, something in a, you know, lower volume, more expensive establishment, like a footed tiny cordial glass of a couple Ooh. ounces. You've seen, I've seen like really beautiful vintage ones used. Um, I think that that's a big part of the service, having it be two, two pieces of glass or like there's no other cocktail where you get two glasses instead of one. So I think it's really important that it comes in that second class. Also, it's just messy, Ugh, that's just yeah that's a little <laughs> passion fruit. so you've alluded multiple times there to to you kind of having to overcome different issues and and but ultimately arriving at your ideal serve based upon what you're able to do where you are before we get into that i was wondering can you first of all outline the recipe and build and 
technique for making this drink in its most classic form. And then maybe after after talking us through that, can you talk about how your current version differs from that? Because I think those are really important points for people in similar markets as yourself to, you know, kind of helpful tips there. But can we start with a classic version? Oh, of course. I think it's important to first, you know, this is, you know, and it, I think it's really important to it whenever possible, hue to the classic when you are showcasing one. Um, so the OG recipe is going to be one and a half ounces, approximately one and a half to two ounces, because, um, this was, you know, this is moving into, uh, Imperial from metric, uh-huh. uh, one and a half ounces vanilla vodka. So I know he was really fond of gray goose Van- is gray goose is vanilla expression. Um, but there are different ones you can use too. again, like I was saying, kind of want to play around to make sure this plays nicely with the other ingredients. Um, a half ounce of passion fruit liqueur, um, two ounces of passion fruit puree, and then two bar spoons. So approximately like a quarter ounce if we're doing by volume of vanilla sugar, and then approximately one and a half to two ounces of chilled champagne on the side. Mm-hmm. And the garnish is half of a passion fruit, ideally with a demi-tasse spoon. And you said serving that into a chilled coupe glass with enough space, should the guest wish, and the nicest possible sidecar. Um, what about just before we do that, this is a shaken cocktail. Uh, are you double straining this after shaking? Do you have any shaking tips? So my feeling on double straining is that with the advent of the tightly coiled Hawthorne strainers that were produced by Cocktail Kingdom, I want to say like it's eight years ago now, um, those have really, for for me in my opinion, um, made a double strain pretty unnecessary. If you're closing the gate, um, unless there's going to be like a muddled element to it, that pretty much gets rid of the mm-hmm. the sort of ice sheen on top. You're not, you know, I ordered a drink, not an ice rink uh, kind of thing. <laughs> so I would do a single strain, but double if you're working with a kind of an older or less tightly wound Hawthorne strainer. Um, and then in terms of shaking it, you know, you do really want to get that you want to do a pretty hard shake. One thing that you can do to augment that would be the addition of either a um, king cube, which is uh, like a silicone two by two inch square that you can add in a, along with ice, or you could shake with a large format cube. Um, the one issue with this, uh, someone with a torn labrum I'm very aware of, uh, is that this can cause tremendous damage to your body. So I, I don't know if I would recommend shaking with a large cube if you're, you're you know, selling 10,000 of these Yikes. every couple years. Yeah, but the, the the ultimate goal there being just as much aeration as possible, and that, that yeah. ult- ultimately translates to this iconic serve and what it looks like at the end of the day in the glass. Um, I will note that I haven't been able to find any photos of Doug actually pouring and completing a passion fruit martini and the thing to think to consider is I'm not sure if he intended for there to be room to pour in some of the sidecar or not. I think his original intention might have been more for it to be like a fun party shot either before or after the drink. But in my perfect porn star, in anticipating the needs and wants of our guests who may want to make the drink a little more acidic, I try to leave a little bit of room. I think that's very considerate there and I totally go along with you on that one. And then finally, sorry, we kind of skipped over this too, but the little demita spoon that, that is traditionally served in there, is that so you can scoop out fresh passion fruit? Yes, so you can have, it was, I remember like, I'd never seen an edible side serve or garnish with a cocktail before I saw my first porn star martini. And I was like, 
I loved the theater of it. And like the fact that it was like three items of serving where the, the coupe glass, the um, shot or cordial glass, and then the demi toss. Like I loved the theatricality of it. Me too. I love that this drink is kind of extra and just comes with those accessories that, that, that really just adds to the adds, adds to this drink. Um, so, so getting back into hacking porn star martinis, can you now share your specific recipe and some of the techniques and ingredients that you've come across to overcome those uh, supply difficulties that you mentioned before, especially maybe in kind of smaller markets, like you say? Yeah, well, I think the first thing that bears explaining, um, and a lot of people, like, I don't even know if you're familiar with this. I'm sure U.S. liquor law to you is like, what is wrong with you people? Um, in So different U.S. states get to um, add different amount of taxes to alcohol that's brought into the state. So the state of Alabama has the fourth highest liquor excise tax. This is what it's called. Um, so basically it means that alcohol is way more expensive here, even wholesale, than it is in other states like, for example, New York, where I worked for 10 years before moving here. So because of that, things like modifiers, so for example, a passion fruit liqueur, um, is tr- are tremendously expensive here. Um, anything kind of like a value-added for example, a vanilla vodka is way more money here than it would be anywhere else. And even though other things like the lease on my space for Queen's Park is less, it's still detrimental to our overall cost of, you know, our product cost um, in terms of, you know, like putting in modifiers will dramatically raise it. So one thing that I started doing just with you know, considering all my cocktails was I started trying to reverse engineer different modifiers so that we didn't have to rely on them. The other issue too, is that we're a control state. So double whammy, which means that it's really challenging for us to just get certain things. The state is basically our liquor store. And unfortunately this liquor store is run by people who have never worked in the industry, have no interest in the industry and don't understand the industry. Um, we used to have to beg them to bring in Campari every year because they'd be like, we don't sell that much of it. And it was like, well, yeah, I realize that, but like there's this drink called a Negroni you might've heard of and you can't (laughs) make it without Campari. There's no like other way to make a Negroni. That's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's basically, it's like the, the inmates are running the asylum. They have like no idea what's (laughs) happening. So really important for us to make sure that, uh, we were able to, for especially for most popular drinks, which are actually a porn star martini and then an espresso martini, that things like passion fruit liqueur and coffee liqueur weren't things that we had to scramble for. Uh, legally, we can't go buy it from a store. We can't go to another state to buy it. So it's like they give you no options. And then the funny thing is we've ended up sort of hacking these these liqueurs, meaning that we're not buying these things from the state anymore. So they're actually making less money than they would be if they just carried the, anyways, I have a lot of feelings about that, but what we did was, so the first thing we did was we created kind of our own passion fruit, um, liqueur. And the issue too, with this was that things like perfect puree and boron are really, really hard to get here. Um, you can get a 22 pound, um, like box of boron, which is actually really sadly, very small. Um, online but it's about 125 per and if you're using a full two ounces of passion fruit puree that i mean it just makes a drink cost that's wild same thing with vanilla vodka um it was just 
it was so like, I remember costing the drink out and I was like, cool, this is gonna be like an $18 cocktail with tax. Like nobody <laughs> in Alabama is going to pay for that. Uh, I know it's more common in big cities, but like our most expensive drink on the menu, I think right now is like $13, including yeah. tax. Oh, we also have the highest tax in the country. It's, it's 10%. Oh, um, yeah. So a lot, lot going against us. Anyways. So what we ended up doing was basically hacking our own passion fruit, um, liqueur slash puree, I guess. So that's, we just add it in one form. Um, we also use lime juice in ours simply because even with the addition of powdered acids, our passion fruit liqueur slash pure cure, whatever I'm going to call it, the combo, <laughs> um, it's just not tart enough. And we keep lime juice in the well. So it's really not an issue. We use vanilla syrup exclusively for the vanilla. We just use a little more than calls for the, in, in the original, because of the fact that again, vanilla vodka is so expensive here. We can't unfortunately use that and then um for our sparkling wine though we do a sparkling rosé it's not a champagne again that liquor excise tax does apply to wine as well so it can be it's really expensive here um but we do have a great um sparkling um cab franc from Le Loir that i'm really fond of um and we specifically chose it for this drink and then that's what we offer as by the glass but we kind of rather than being like oh it's what we have by the glass that's what we're going to use we're like okay cool so we also sell this by the glass now um, but I have a great cost on it because it's your best selling cocktail uses an ounce and a half of wine in it. You never have to toss the wine. Like we mm. have zero waste on it, which is awesome. That is awesome. And then for garnish, I just like ethically don't feel great about passion fruits. Like they're not grown here. They have to be shipped and trucked here and just, you know, bars produce a hundred thousand pounds of waste on average a year. Um, I just felt I feel like whenever I can kind of mitigate the environmental impact of that, like, you know, it's the same thing, like 70 com companies produce like 90% of like carbon emissions in the world. And it's, you know, individuals don't produce as much, but if as a business owner, I can kind of lower the amount of, you know, impact I'm having, I'm going to try and do that. And we do that in a lot of different ways throughout mm. the space. But one small way is we just garnish it with a lime wheel. I wish we could do a passion fruit. Obviously it looks so much cooler, but I just, I just ethically didn't feel great about doing that. Although I, I am known to enjoy a porn star with an actual passion fruit garnish. Mm -hmm. I think those are, those are so many great points that you bring up and just, you know, talking into all the different worlds that any one drink made behind a bar and served to guests can, can creep into, right? We're talking taxation here, different states, laws, environmental issues, like all of them coming together in this one drink. Mm -hmm. I think that's a wonderful way of kind of highlighting that. Yeah. And I think it's still, you know, ours is like texturally, it's still rich from the sugar. It's not as rich, obviously, as with two ounces of passion fruit puree, but it's still, it's a great drink. Like mm -hmm. it is the spirit of the drink. I think, I think if Doug were to have seen it when he was alive, he would give me a high five and be like, keep going. That's great. So I feel good about it. Amazing. Hacking and reverse engineering the porn star martini with Laura Newman. Wonderful. Um, any final thoughts on this drink before we move into the final segment of our show? Gosh, not really. I'm just, you know, I'm really, it's nice to, you know, know, ha like have all this primary source information from the person who created it. I think that's so cool. And, um, you know, we, my menu is actually an APA format lists like credits who created the drink. So it's cool to like have his name, like underneath the drink. I think that's really, mm -hmm. you know, important to give credit where credit is due. Um, so literally every single drink 
has that, but especially for him at school, because it says like the date it was created. So you nice. can see it. Oh, this is so recent. And I think that's really cool. You know, educating consumers on, you know, how I think some people are shocked at how new it is. Like some people are like, oh, like I drank, you know, passion fruit alizé in the seventies. Like, wow, I didn't <laughs> have no idea. But, you know, he was a modern guy uh, who just was in, so, in a lot of ways ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really cool that he, you know, produced something that has, you know, will have, has had and will continue to have such impact. I can only hope to do something similar. Mm-hmm. I think what he has done there is amazing. I love the fact that you're continuing his legacy by naming him on the menu there. I also just like slightly unrelated, but would like to add my own opinion for two seconds here, if, if folks will allow me to, which is that some sometimes people have spoken about this drink being too sweet and that being, you know, something that we should count against a porn star martini. Now, I think all of the techniques that you've outlined there show how you can avoid doing that. But also, like, these are two ingredients that you mentioned at the top of the show, vanilla and passion fruit, that are traditionally found in desserts. There's a reason why if you're having a three-course meal, only one of them is a dessert, or if you're doing a five- or seven-course tasting menu, you know, you're going to get one or two desserts and the rest are going to be savory. Sweet things, we're not supposed to enjoy far too many of them. And so you can say, yeah, maybe you're only going to have one. I, I challenge that, though. You'd probably definitely always want two. But... That shouldn't be counted. That shouldn't be held against the porn star martini. I also think it's like, I mean, it's like taste your drinks and like dial your spec in. If you think that the original recipe is too sweet, you can add, you know, add like a sour agent, add like, you know, I just don't, I think, I mean, obviously it's a shaken drink. So of course it's going to be sweeter than just like spirit served up. So mm. I think, you know, I, I think if someone's like, complaining about a drink being too sweet as its original spec then change it then modify it make it to your palate like Mm -hmm. it's still the spirit of the original drink i think no one can argue against passion fruit and vanilla working together seamlessly (laughs) well that's been wonderful A, a truly enjoyable conversation and exploration there laura thank you for that now for our quick hit questions to finish the show how do you feel oh i feel great um it's really nice. I'm just, you know, enjoying a rainy day, drinking some tea, chatting about cocktails. I mean, this is a great morning. <laughs> <laughs> so question number one for our guests to get to know you a little bit more as a bartender and your program. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? Okay, well, I was thinking about this and I was like, man, he's probably just talking about my house, but I, of course, went to my bars um, Mm -hmm. at my cocktail bar, Queens Park. It's a toss up between whiskey and rum, definitely. Um, And then at my uh, basically nightclub that I own called Neon Moon, it's whiskey for sure. At my house, uh, it's probably Amari and modifiers just because we just end up with, you know, I'll be like, Oh, we can't get this here. And then I bring it home and never use it, but we just have so much stuff if, <laughs> in terms of spirit though. It would be rum. Mm-hmm. We're definitely a rum family. Amazing. So that's kind of like equal at neck and neck there, whiskey and rum kind of across the board. If you're looking yeah. at them. Yeah. Nice. Question number two, which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal. Oh, yikes. I keep, yeah, you told me about this one ahead of time, and I'm, I'm still having a lot of 
emotions about it. Um, most undervalued. I mean, I don't know, man. Um, I think ingredient wise, um, I'm really fond of vanilla. Uh, we keep it in our well because of the passion fruit martini or sorry, the porn, I keep saying this, the porn star martini, obviously. Um, but I use vanilla in a lot of things. Um, I think it can add to a perception of sweetness without actually adding sweetness. Um, so I think that's a really cool way to kind of play around with people's expectations of um, expectations and then perceptions of taste in a cocktail. Nice. I like it. I'm very on brand for this conversation. So thank I had you. I to go with it. I had to do it. Question number three. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Oof. Um, yeah, I thought about this one too. That's hard. Um, gosh, I think, uh, I can't even remember who told me to do this, but just, you know, remembering to have like hobbies and a life outside of the industry. As much as I, you know, love cocktails and I love bartending and I've been doing this for a very long time and I hope to continue to do it for a long time. Um, I do think it's really healthy uh, to have, you know, friends that don't work in the industry to do things that aren't industry related. I read books that have nothing to do with cocktails. I garden, I, uh, you know, and I would say I run, but it's like, you know, everyone should be exercising, but you know what I mean? Like I Mm -hmm. kind of like intentionally choose to do things that like have nothing to do with, or I volunteer at a food pantry, like stuff like that. Just doing things that, you know, keep you from being too like, like emotionally and physically, like Mm -hmm. really set in into the booze world nothing wrong with it but i just think it's nice you know kind of vary mm-hmm. what you do and keeps the job fresh keeps the keeps the yeah. keeps the passion alive there when it comes to approaching your profession yeah yeah i think it's it's really important to have kind of a thing that's yours outside of mm-hmm. wonderful question number four penultimate question here if you could only visit one last bar in your life what would it be um I'm going to be honest. I absolutely love Lioness in London. Um, I know, like, I feel like whenever I tell people this, they're like, oh, but there's, you don't like, blah, blah, blah. and it's like, yes, I like that bar too. It's just Lioness is like, I just love it. It's like, it's like what I want when I go to a bar. I absolutely adore it. I love the staff. Um, every time I go, I went once when um, I was in London and my husband called me right before I walked in the door and he was like, two of our dogs have escaped they were found eventually, but I walked in and I was like hysterically crying and the staff was so wonderful to me. Like they were so cool about taking it in stride and like, you know, brought me tea. They were like, do you need us? Like call anyone in the U S like I was having this like complete come apart and they were just so wonderful. Just the hospitality there is great. I love the drinks. I love everything about their steps of service really do it for me. That just, I truly, truly love that bar. I look forward to going there mm-hmm. every time I go. And then in the U.S., um, I love sitting at a bar, any bar that Souther Teague is working at. Um, I just, he to me is a bartender's bartender. He is my mentor and a great friend. Um, and I just, I, I love watching him bartend, even if he's super busy and I am the last person he talks to. I love watching him talk to other people and just be a master of his craft. Two very fine choices right there. Final question for the show today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? I feel like this is a bit of a cop out because I'm not saying anything specific, although I can give specific examples. Um, Anything by Luis Hernandez is a cocktail I want to drink 
and to me would just be a wonderful last cocktail to have. He's really, I worked with him at Bacchanal um, in lower Manhattan in like 2014, I want to say. And we were, it was like mutual, not like love at first sight, like mutual admiration and respect and like just, just really enjoying each other and each other's palates at first sight. I think he, he does Mm -hmm. things that are so creative and interesting like I the last drink I had from him I think when he was bartending before I moved to more of a brand side was he'd done some it was like a an old-fashioned that had like chorizo like somehow in it like this chorizo wow. washed or something it was like incredible like I just everything he does he it's not just that it's a delicious drink but he's come up with some crazy technique or like taken an existing technique like 10 steps further and just done something so wild. He takes such a culinary approach to cocktails. And to me, like having a cocktail by him and then being like, I can't drink drinks anymore after this, I'd be like, okay, cool. Well, I'd probably have it. I'd love it. And I'd be like, I know that cocktails are in a good place because he's going to take them even further. (laughs) I love that idea as well of being like, okay, don't care what it is you make, but as long as this person is, is kind of yeah. making it, then that will be that will make me happy. Amazing. Well, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, I know of at least two listeners that are going to love this one. So if no one else does, both, our moms are gonna love it. <laughs> both of our mothers are going to be happy. And that's all that matters. <laughs> Tim, thank you so much. This has been so fun. I wish I could be there in person, but I guess I'll have to come make you guys pour and star martinis in the studio the next time I'm up in New York. We'll be waiting and we can't wait for it. Thanks, Thanks, Laura. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on VinePair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Greenberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>